0: Welcome everyone uh, to this Institute for Government event looking at uh, manifestos, uh, what makes a good manifesto, uh, what's involved in writing a a manifesto and what we might be able to expect in some of the manifestos this year at the election. I'm Catherine Haddon, Programme Director here at the Institute for Government. General election is less than a year away, and the closer it gets, the more the political parties will be expected to set out what they would do were they to form the next government. We've had Rishi Sunak's five pledges. Keir Starmer has given us his, given us his five missions. But a big moment in any general election campaign is, of course, when that manifesto is published. Some are brief, we were just talking. Uh, You can go back to the 1945 manifesto, it's a few thousand words. Uh, Some run to hundreds of pages, we reckon they're more in the 20, 30, or even 40,000 word mark now. All are heavily scrutinized by the media. And a manifesto launch is obviously a massive moment for a political party and will lead that day's bulletins. And they can also really shape a campaign narrative, sometimes in the wrong ways. We all remember Theresa May's urgent insistence that nothing has changed after the Conservative 2017 manifesto promise to reform social care. So today, as part of the Institute's general election programme, we'll be asking what makes for a good manifesto. With our panel, we'll discuss the process of writing a manifesto and just how important they are during the campaign and whether or not, importantly, a manifesto can change a voter's mind. To discuss this, I'm very delighted to be joined by an excellent panel. Uh, Andrew Fisher is the former Executive Director of Policy for the Labour Party uh, and author of both the 2017 and 2019 Labour Manifestos. Rachel Rolfe... Rachel Wolfe, uh, founding partner at Public First, was co author of the 2019 Conservative Manifesto. And Robert Shrimsley is the chief UK political commentator and executive editor at the Financial Times. Thank you I wrote all. no manifestos. Written <laughs> <laughs> no manifestos. have <laughs> <laughs> yeah, read a few. Man- of them. <laughs> He was also just reading the Tamworth Manifesto, so we might get into the history of manifestos as well. Um, Before we get into the discussion, just to say, please do ask questions. Uh, If you're watching online, submit them on Slido. Uh, They will come to me magically uh, at the front, not magically, through an iPad uh, at the front. Uh, And for those of you in the room or uh, in the next door room, we will have a roving microphone and we'll come round to all of you with some questions as well. But first, uh, Rachel, I'm going to start with you. Obviously, as the author of the last winning manifesto, sorry, Andrew. Um, what? <laughs> well, you've written more of them. Uh, what makes for a good manifesto? And do you think voters do change their minds on the back of them? Uh,
1: so, I suppose the first thing to say is I think uh, often when people talk about manifestos, what they talk about is this printed document or now online PDF document that appears. But that's not really when you're in an election campaign, at least for us, how manifestos get used, because manifestos are usually produced quite late in an election campaign. And by the time you produce a manifesto, ideally you only want one or two things in it you haven't announced before, because otherwise you're wasting your campaigning media moment. So a huge proportion of what goes into a manifesto is actually the content that has driven the announcements, visits, speeches, of the leader, in our case cabinet, otherwise shadow cabinet, through the entire election campaign. So the content of a manifesto is, I think, very important in substantiating the basic stories that a party is trying to tell through a campaign. Uh, And that matters much more than the final document. The the final document, I think, matters in two ways, predominantly, well, three. Uh, The first is um, you ideally want it to not lose you the election. So when we were writing it in 2019, to be honest, we were all just shaking with terror that we were going to produce something that lost the election much more than we were concerned about producing something that might win it, because you'll always have the overhang of the previous couple of elections, even if everything's different, kind of hanging over you. And do stop me if I'm talking too long, I'm sorry. Um, So that's something that you really hope. The second, which tends to matter hugely in British politics, is that the overarching manifesto meets a basic fiscal first and government second credibility test. Broadly, A, do your numbers add up in any sort of vaguely reasonable way? No, but just roughly do they add up? And two, do people broadly buy through the filter of things like the IFS, but also through the media that this is a credible government that's not going to blow up. That's really important that the kind of overarching manifesto does that. And then the third reason that a manifesto uh, matters, these are the most important, there are sort of other minor ones, like don't create unnecessary news stories for yourself, actually ideally announce some good policies that you think will be useful for the country, Uh, is that there are vast numbers of civil servants in government that are writing down sort of on lines in a spreadsheet to vastly greater detail than anyone except perhaps the author of the manifesto themselves has ever done. They know much more about what's in the manifesto than the prime minister probably does, um, who see this as the sort of basic starting mandate of the government. And of course the Lords Mm. also see it as a mandate. So, So the content of a manifesto I think matters as the story of the election campaign. The actual manifesto matters to an extent about the specific things in it, but also about whether you look basically credible. And then a manifesto in normal political times, if you ever accept normal political times can occur, form the basis for what a mandate for a government, given we are electing a sort of legislature that forms an executive Mm -hmm. is. And I think those are the most important things to bear in mind. What, of course, in fact, you spend lots of your time doing is um, hoping that you haven't forgotten something that's going to make the news story miserable on that day, and that is politics.
0: Um, Andrew, I mean, you wrote two of them. What experience did you take from 2017 into 2019? The circumstances were a bit different in a 2017. You weren't expecting the election right then. Yeah, so
2: 2017 was obviously a snap election. You yeah, know, Theresa May, the myth goes when walking somewhere in in Wales, I think, yep. and, and then decided, oh, should we have an election? I'm 25 points ahead. It seems like a good idea, having denied she would. Um, and whilst we'd been preparing since she won, and which was in 2016 by mm. a kind of acclamation in the end, wasn't it? There wasn't a contest. We thought she's probably going to go for an election fairly soon. But then there was denial after denial after denial, and we have probably slowed down our, our kind of preparations for it. We'd set out the kind of building blocks of how it would get done in a snap election, what the timelines would be, because whilst you're right, Rachel, that it's got to be, you know, it tends to come out three, four weeks before polling day, which isn't long, for the Labour Party, you've got to go through quite a, yeah. a yeah. kind of constitutional process called the Clause 5 meeting, which is basically a huge meeting of about 85 people, which is the Shadow Cabinet, the NEC of the Labour Party, the contact group, group of trade unions, <laughs> and various sort of representatives of the PLP um, who then have to go through it line by line and sign it off. Um, this became mildly famous when I think Len McCluskey slipped down on the steps outside and there was a photoshop of him kind of, you know, spread eagled um, for it. But generally they're behind closed doors and nobody pays much attention to this. Um, so it's quite a process. So we had about just under four weeks to write a manifesto pretty much from scratch. Um, In April, we had the kind of core policies. We knew the basics, you know, public ownership, redistributive taxation, ending austerity kind of stuff. We knew where we were going to do tax rises. We'd costed things. It wasn't, you know, starting from literally scratch, but in terms of writing, it Mm. pretty much was. Um, Whereas, obviously, in 2019, having had the experience of that and having had, (coughs) I use the term relatively advisedly, a relatively Mm. more stable period, Um, obviously there'd been a leadership election in 2016, attempted coup before that, and kind of lots of uh, resistance, some would say sabotage, rightly in my view, Uh, within the Labour Party as well. um, 2019 was a bit more easy, and we were obviously more experienced in the job and had done a manifesto before, so that's easier, definitely, having done it. Um, And we had a a greater depth of policy, irrelevant because the 2019 election was only on one issue, really, which was Brexit. Um, So the difference between the two, I think... 2017 had an impact because we managed to change the framing of the election. Theresa May wanted that election to be a Brexit election. I'm hamstrung by this awful Parliament, House of Commons, House of Lords, that is going to block Brexit, which is ironic given Labour supported the triggering of Article 50. So I think my suspicion is she'd calculated we weren't going to do that Mm. and therefore she could frame it as, look, they're resisting Brexit, I need a mandate. We didn't fall into that trap um, because we respect to the result of the referendum, at least at that point. People can debate afterwards. Um, and you know, we managed to turn it into a debate about austerity, and primarily the 2017 election was a debate about austerity, which is why Labour's vote went up massively in that election, in fact more in that election campaign than in any other election campaign. I think certainly in post-war British history, um, the shift in the polling from the announcement of the election to polling day hmm. was the greatest. Um, so uh, yeah have a big impact i, I co- think it's my view
0: i might come back to that point okay. about single issues and slogans mm. robert um just turning to you you've covered obviously a lot of elections as a journalist i'm sure you've read all of these manifestos um how much do they really matter i mean from the point of view of a journalist and also <coughs> your perception of, of how the public engage with them
3: well obviously the point of view of a journalist is very different to anybody else who's normal and a voter and <laughs> we, we view them in a different way and obviously As I think Rachel was saying, journalists look at things through the prism of what's new, uh, which isn't necessarily the right way to do this. In fact, I I mean, I'm I'm a massive manifesto sceptic, which is possibly why you asked me. Um, and, And it seems to me that if a party has got its campaign and its political strategy right in the year before the election, the manifesto should be utterly irrelevant. Um, and the more the manifesto comes as a surprise, the worse things are likely to go um, for a party. I think they are more important for oppositions than they are for governments, mm. because the, opposi- cause, cause the fundamental of a manifesto is, here's the dragon, this is how we're going to slay it. There's the story of your critique of where the country is. And obviously, if you're in government, mm. that's a much more nuanced exercise. Um, I, I think that, it's as a journalist, when I'm writing my opinion columns, one of the things I find incredibly helpful is to work out what my ideal headline for this piece would be before I start writing. Because if I can, then I've got clarity about what I am trying to say. And I think the manifesto's primary purpose is as an exercise to bring clarity Mm. to the parties about what it is you are trying to say and what you are trying to offer. And the best manifestos, in my mind, have relatively few hard promises in them. There might be a couple, but an absolute crystal clear critique of what it is you think is right and wrong in society and, and, and how you're going to change it. And I'm also a little bit of a sceptic of the, of the mandate argument with manifestos, except in certain highly contentious, particularly constitutional reform areas. I think you know, the mandate comes from winning the election, by and large. And, you know, people may not really know what any particular Conservative or Labour leader is going to do, but they have a rough idea what the Conservatives are about and what the Labour Party is about. And roughly, they understand the attitudes that you'll bring to it. because, of course, most of the government is dealing with things that you didn't know what you were mm-hmm. going to have to deal with. So it's about setting out your attitude and your values. Um, so, so for me, I think the manifesto's primary value is enforcing parties' to have absolute clarity about what they're trying to say. And the more surprises there are on the day, mm. um, the worse it's likely to be.
0: Mm. And mean, Rachel, it's interesting to probe that point a bit further, because yes, the civil service will scrutinise to death a manifesto for what it means about policies likely to come into government. Think tanks will also do similar. How much effort are you putting into trying to devise the policy that is then you know, represented in the manifesto or is it just thinking about the, the strength of the words and the argument that Robert was talking about?
1: Well, I suppose for the Conservative Party, the Conservative Party has zero process. There's no rule. So every manifesto process is completely different from the last. There's no way in which this is done. And I suppose to sort of 70% agree with Robert, the, the, the basic strategy and the basic narrative of the 2019 election for the Conservative Party was set before the election was called. And it was very clear, and and the manifesto absolutely pushed into that. That did involve some concrete policy, though. That was the clarity, you know. um, Leaving the European Union is indeed a policy. Uh, Increasing public service spending is a policy. There are some core pieces of substance in there. Um, And I think, I don't know if I disagree with Robert here, but I'll, I will, whether he would discreet, but I think we sometimes uh, underestimate, I think, the public's interest in substance. The way in which they judge whether someone is serious rhetorically is, is mm. through substance. Is immigration up or down? Is it? Are we spending more or less? Like the, actually, in my experience, uh, the public are much more interested in policy conversations than most of Westminster mm-hmm. it's, um, at a sort of relatively high level. Okay. Um, But but yes, I agree, it is is fundamentally about uh, clarity over the overarching direction a government is likely to take. The mandate question, you can change your mind about almost everything when you're in government. It is easier to manage your own party Mm. mm, as well as the Lords if they feel that they have been elected on clear promises. So it does make a difference. And the process of the manifesto in binding people to that does make a difference in your ability to then govern, mm. so I think it does matter internally, but you are right that the, no one in the public is saying, well on page 32 you said, that, that is that is." But it's also, It's
3: also used as a, a, by members of the party who don't trust their leadership, so for example, I would argue it's a catastrophically stupid idea to make a commitment not to raise any of the main levels of taxation, 60 odd percent of, our, of tax revenue comes from three taxes. At uh, the last election, I think both parties, I can't remember what the Labour Party certainly the Conservative Party committed not to raise any of them. My guess is it will happen again. No. Now, one may think they shouldn't raise them, but I think it absolutely happened by, too.
1: Hmm? I think yeah, it so well it have, too. think did. Yeah, he may well have
3: done, yeah. And the same with the Triple lock. The, they're perfectly valid policies, and it's perfectly reasonable to believe in them, but to tie your hands on something as essential as that and to use your manifesto to stop yourself doing something which might, in government, you know, if for example you had a pandemic and ran up an enormous deficit, mm. you might find it useful. So that, that kind of prescriptive action within man, manifestos, I think, is very damaging.
0: Yeah, well, it's an interesting question about whether there's almost an arms race of manifestos that mm. you know, if if somebody moves to one position, you've got to to. Um, follow that. Andrew, I just want to briefly talk about launches of manifestos Mm. but also leaks of manifestos (laughs) because uh, you did famously have uh, one of your manifestos leak a couple of days earlier. I think in the end it helps the Labour Party, it got got some of the messages out but did you find out who did it?
2: I was told who did it by somebody else who claims to have found out who did it, who was very senior within the party and had investigated it, and from my own, I didn't bother doing this until after the election, I went back, because manifestos are tightly guarded, right? The shadow cabinet, at the point it had leaked, had only seen their section of the manifesto, they had not seen the whole thing. The people who had seen the whole thing (coughs) were the leader, the deputy leader, Scotland and Wales, because obviously with devolution you can't commit Welsh Labour who are in government to education policy or health policy or transport policy because they're devolved. So they have to see it and then knock out all the bits that don't apply to them and put in their own stuff. Um, and uh, some trade unions, sorry, no, trade unions had seen a paper copy of it, which nobody had had an electronic version of that. Nobody had left the room with those paper copies. They were numbered, they were kind of, you know, phones were confiscated when they saw them. You know, it was quite tightly controlled. Um, and I was the one tightly controlling it with a couple of colleagues. Um, So I worked out afterwards which version had leaked, and it was the version that went to Scotland and Wales. Given um, what I was told afterwards and given the relative warmth, I think, towards Jeremy's Labour Party at that point, I think it's quite clear that it was Scotland was the source of where it leaked, would be my uh, profound guess, but I'm not going to name the individual who apparently did do it. but nothing happened to them, bizarrely. But yes, I agree, it did, it did work in our favor. I don't think that was the intent. Mm. Um, I think the intent was to try and kibosh it just before the Clause 5 meeting and make people go, it says all these things about public ownership of things, which poll really well and are popular, even with Tory voters. How, you know, it will be the death of us. And actually it wasn't, it was massively popular. And it was leaked to the Mirror and the Telegraph on the same day. Uh, The following day, the Mirror polled all of the policies and they came out massively popular, which was not a surprise to me because we'd polled them all in advance and knew they came out massively popular, which is why we put them in the manifesto, apart from ideologically believing in all of that stuff as well. So um, that was, I think, the first time in electoral history that a manifesto has ever leaked. Um, I hope for the sake of everyone involved in the future, it it remains the last because I remember, um, I'm sure he won't mind me saying it, I think he's told it publicly, James Schneider... Was the press officer who got the call from I think the Telegraph first of all that they'd got the entire manifesto and he came up and told me and he said you went white as a sheet I said I started off that way but you know I take your point um, you know and it was just like oh my god because you know we were under huge pressure we weren't popular within the party there was a lot of things going on in terms of you know nonsense going on within the Labour HQ because obviously mm. everyone had moved into Labour HQ Parliament had shut down. Um, And it was quite worrying. I thought, oh, my God, am I going to get, you know, get the boot? You know, I've I've let this be leaked. And, you know, it was quite worrying. And we had things planned for the following day, which all got changed in an election campaign, because clearly you're not going to be talking about, I think it was a poster, you know, sort of attack ad thing. I mean, it wasn't anything I was involved in, but some sort of attack ad on the Tories was going to be launched with, you know, some billboard thing on the back of a lorry, stunt, you know, tedious sort of election stuff. Um, and that all got cancelled and Andrew Gwynn basically had to be briefed on the election because he was on the Today programme and was, we were up till gone one o'clock in the morning briefing him on everything that had just come out because he hadn't seen it beforehand. Mm. Whereas I you know, was one of the few people who knew exactly what was in it chapter by chapter. So um, that was an interesting 24 hours, but I agree with you. After that, after it had launched and after the polls moved, I think, from, I think we were 17 points behind when the manifesto officially launched. Uh, on an average of polls, I was looking at this the other day for something else, and it went down to, I think we had 2.4 points behind on on the 2017 election in the end. It had a good effect and the YouGov polling showed that the number one reason why people voted Labour was because of the manifesto on our policies. So it did have an impact. Um, And I think it's fair to say in 2019, you couldn't pull the rabbit out of the hat for a second time. um, Because the number one issue was Brexit and we didn't manage to shift that narrative within the campaign. It was. As, uh, as Boris Johnson said, and indeed as Sky put it across their banner, not that I'm bitter, a Brexit election.
0: And w- what is it like in opposition to have that pressure to get detail about so many different areas of, of yeah. policy? It, it can't be just that you can pick and choose a few areas. No, you've, got, you've, to got, you've got, got to be
2: comprehensive. Um, mm-hmm. And I think the scrutiny we were under, both internally and externally, I think was greater than a lot of others would have experienced as well and you know there are we didn't have many friends within the media I think it's fair to say and I don't say that as some great conspiracy it's just true that most of the media is anti-labor generally but certainly anti-left-wing labor and therefore we were more concerned about that and that's part of the reason I think John McDonnell during the election campaign although quite near the start said it's going to be fully costed which wasn't necessarily a problem it's just we hadn't planned on doing that. He hadn't told the staff that we were going to do that, um, which came as a bit of a shock to his shadow treasury team. But we got it together and there was a grey book, um, literally Mm. called the grey book, published alongside it, called Funding Britain's Future, I think, from memory, um, which was published alongside the manifesto, which did set out in immense detail, more detail than had ever been set out with any manifesto, the costings, because part of the thing, I think, that was a scrutiny on us was, well, how do you pay for all of this? And we had an answer.
0: And Rachel, I mean, you just talked about mandates, but the last manifesto was the 2019. In a way, do you think Rishi Sunak's pledges are his way of setting his own mandate of what he wanted to be judged on by the time of the next election, rather than referring back to a, a manifesto which, you know, long preceded his time coming in as Prime Minister?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think both of the prime ministers since Boris have rhetorically said they want to stick to the manifesto and, in fact, have had absolutely no desire to. Um, and I'm certain that that's what the five pledges were for. And, and to Robert's point, right, that's entirely legitimate. The world had changed very substantially mm-hmm. since 2019. We'd had COVID in Ukraine. The concerns in people's minds were completely different and one of the challenges, I mean, the, the, the fundamental challenge for the Conservative Party is that um, this trick that Boris pulled off, which was to appear like a first-term government, mm. right. which I think he did pull off, he, was much more, he felt much more like an opposition than a government, you can't do it again. And so you only have one form of manifesto that you can produce, which is we started the job, trust us to finish it. If you look at second-term manifestos, Thatcher's second term, Blair's second and third term, uh, the 2015 long-term economic plan, that's broadly what those manifestos are. Um, But there's no real job that they've had a chance to start because they were only starting about a year ago and it's very difficult for them to say, well, clearly we're doing a good job on this, like trust us to complete it. Uh, Which is why I think they will go with a sort of version of better the devil you know but it is, it is much more difficult. That's not an answer to your direct question, which was, yes, I think that is what Rishi Sunak was doing. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, and Andrew, presumably the same is true of the missions in a way that is, one assumes, the core of what the manifesto then would, would turn out to be. Had you been doing similar with Corbyn in the run-up to it, laying the ground for the many, not the few, had come up yeah. quite I a mean, lot as a slogan?
2: Yeah, so for the many, not the few was... The slogan we decided to run with for the campaign um, I think right at the start and it fitted with with the core policy certainly that were in the manifesto so redistributive taxation you know you're benefiting the many not the few you know Um, ending austerity it means you're funding public services properly which is for the many not the few. Um, you're getting hold of public ownership because these things should be in the possession of the many, not the few. So it fitted with our kind of core policy um, offer um, and I think that's why it resonated. I think mm-hmm. that's what Robert was talking about, about a campaign slogan and in fact Rachel did as well. You know, that having that core narrative that it drives what you're saying, I think did happen in 2017 it happened quite effectively. Um, in 2019, Brexit election, you know, uh, certainly we didn't have that. You, it, you couldn't put our Brexit policy into a slogan. It was took half a paragraph, if not two paragraphs, to explain it. Um, and, you know, it clearly didn't work in a first-past-the-post system when you look at the 2016 referendum. I think about 400 constituencies voted to leave, 200 voted to remain. The 2019 election, pretty much those kind of numbers. So it's not surprising. Um, but, yeah, you do have to. And I think Keir Starmer... It, Yeah, I think it's still up to substantial refinement, I think is a generous way of saying it. But I think those missions are an attempt to kind of say, here are the broad problems, here are our solutions. I think that kind of second level of detail is what's gonna be interesting of what appears (coughs) in the manifesto, because at the moment, achieving the highest sustained growth in the G7, great idea, I mean, we're all in favor of it, right? Maybe not, there's some environmentalists who would say, actually, we need degrowth and all that, but broadly speaking, good thing. How do you get there? I don't think it's quite yet been explained.
1: I think it's going to be fascinating because, mm. as I said, if, if the only possible conservative manifesto is we started the job, trust to finish it, but what, what is it that they're being trusted to finish? And the only possible opposition slogan is change. Mm. It's not completely clear exactly what they're going mm. to do differently. I mean, to well, fear, that's, the whole that's point, not going it? to stop them winning at all. No, I mean, but, right. point is
3: that the, the, the next election is going to be a contest between two parties about who can better deliver on Boris Johnson's election promises. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they are essentially going to, get, going to go at the same place and, and the Labour p- line will be a variant of Britain can do better or give, uh, give, give Britain its future back I see being road-tested occasionally but it, it, it's uh-huh. essentially saying, you know, yeah. all these things Boris promised but didn't do we're sort of, we're in favour of levelling up, we're in favour of sorting out the NHA. Mm.
0: Well, I mean, you know, we've talked about the missions um, the pledges haven't quite worked out because they were a sort of beginning of 2023 um, still struggling on some of those areas, do you think, and we heard last uh, party conference, Rishi Sunak was trying to develop his own line about change yeah. January, it's changed again uh, do you think the Conservatives are still looking for what that slogan or that central message is? A
3: slogan perhaps, I think the Conservatives have resolved Rishi Sunak has resolved this you know, he's, he's gone back to the strategy which was the only strategy that was ever available to him it was the right strategy that he started off with yeah. and the five Pledges to me were an attempt to create some kind of loss aversion to him as prime minister. So these are the five, you know, these are the five things which are our internal polling shows are the five things you most care about. I'm going to do them, and when I've done them, I can say to you, look, you've actually inadvertently, the Conservatives have found a good prime minister, and so let's stick with him. Uh, don't take the risk with Labour, and that was a sensible strategy, and it was the only possible strategy. Then you had the local elections, bit of a wobble mm. in Downing Street. Everybody understands that change is an attractive thing, so I'm the change candidate, except it obviously wasn't going to work. It was a bad idea, and they at least <coughs> got the sense to junk it. So it, it, it was an attempt to create some kind of loss aversion mm. to, to me. Uh,
1: Actually, I think the five pledges would have been a sensational set of policies for Keir Starmer to go in on. Um, and, uh, and one of the challenges, this is a sort of, I spend a lot of time doing opinion research, but one of my minor bugbears about how we use opinion research is a bunch of pollsters come back and they're like, you know what people would really like mm-hmm. is to be richer and for the NHS to work really well. I'm like, oh, okay, I'll promise that. I'll just sort that out in the next six months. Mm-hmm. But if you're in government and you make pledges, people are, are uninterested in what your manifesto says. They're interested in what you did in government and whether they think you will do any differently in government the next time. There is no manifesto process for a normal government. The budget is the manifesto Mm. process. There isn't a one. It was different in 2019 because they'd just come in and they were talking Mm. about breaking a deadlock to an extent Mm. that's what Theresa May hoped would happen in 2017. That Mm. is not the case now. There is no movement to election mode. It's now. Mm.
0: Um, we've got a question online from John Gertler asking, do we know how many people read manifestos? Um, good question. Do we know downloads?
2: We do. Uh, so the 2017 manifesto, between the time it was officially published by the Labour Party, not by the Telegraph of the Mirror, and polling day had been downloaded six million times from the Labour Party website, which is unprecedented untold. now. Obviously, you know, the world's a bit more online, than, although not much more than it was in 2015. But it it did catch a thing, it had to be reprinted in physical copy three times, which had never happened before um, because people were buying it online from the Labour Party. It actually worked as quite a fundraiser for the party, which was much needed um, as well. Um, So yeah, I mean, I can't say that every six million of those read it cover to cover or that they weren't, I don't know that they were all unique users either, to be fair, but there's probably a limit to how many times you're gonna download it, even if you're quite enthusiastic. but I don't, I don't have the figures for 2019. I was probably a bit demobbed by then and you know, I knew things weren't quite on the up at that point. So um, yeah, I think they can have a, I think they are read and I think people do look for, probably mm. people that do download it, look for the things that are interesting to them. They might read the foreword, word, the bit by Jeremy Corbyn. Um, they might look for something on the NHS or something on the environment if that's what they're really concerned about, but probably very few people outside of journalists, politicians and not all of them, let's be honest. Um, do read them cover to cover mm. but
0: um got an excellent excellent question from hillary online is it an advantage or disadvantage to public publish first we've got a new explainer out today uh in which my colleague ben has done a little chart showing back since 1997 um who published first and how long after the election was called and how far out from uh, ele- uh from polling day each manifesto was published But is there a correlation um, Not uh, trying to think how in terms of the thing. I don't think so, no, because I think it's normally the Conservatives go first and then Labour second. So, uh, obviously, that didn't work out in 1997. (laughs) I don't think it matters at all, really, in the grand scheme of things. Doesn't make any difference to the... I
2: I don't think so. Yeah. I think if there was a large gap, it might. I think if one party was out there and had a manifesto and it was like more than a week later i think you would look a bit like come on where's your homework you know yeah. it's that kind of thing but no they're normally about two or three days apart i think
3: and they normally agree with yeah. the parties actually work it out with each other don't they there's, there's some, an agreement some, some conversation yeah. so that you don't clash
2: so yeah. you're both announcing on the same day there is some back channels yeah, yeah.
3: which would lend you to the view that it can't matter because otherwise they'd never agree on who went first
0: <laughs> <laughs> very good point very good point right uh, i'm going to turn some questions in the room or we've already got a couple of hands up mm. Uh, right. Uh, Lauren is just grabbing the microphone. We're going to come do these ones on this side. I think first I'll come to you guys later. if That's okay. So gentlemen at the front and then lady behind. Thanks very could nice. you, sorry. Could you say who you are just for the people watching at home? Yeah. Uh,
2: my name is Martin. I am a freelance political consultant, but I used to be a civil servant. and I used to read manifestos for a living. Um, I'd like to the panel to see if they agree with this great panel. Um, uh, Manifestos are going to become more important for two reasons, both of which have been alluded to. One, party discipline is falling apart, even in the Conservative Party, which used to be famously better disciplined than Labour, and now it's worse, frankly. And the second reason is the Lords has got bigger, It's got more political. It's much bolshier. There's no inbuilt majority for anybody. So you have to write more down in your manifesto because otherwise you won't get it through the House of Lords. So it might be a bit depressing, but I think manifestos are here to stay and they will become more important in the future. I wonder if the panel would agree with that.
0: Okay, we'll come back to that. And then the lady behind you. Thank you.
4: Good afternoon I'm Grace Duffy from Bridges Outcomes Partnerships so uh, I'm one of the many people trying to seeking to influence the manifestos of the of the of whoever will be the next government for me, because I want them, I want whoever the next government is to do more public spending on outcomes and prevention. But I wondered if you had any advice for how to how to influence the manifestos. <laughs> and then, so if I could do a little bit, because I was also until very recently a civil servant, and yeah, we absolutely we would we would go through and read read all of this cover to cover. And so there's, a, and I would be interested to get your views on in terms of that um, sort of hook and the and the mandate question about reforms. And if you want to change the way that things are done, you know, do do you, is, what's the what's the risk of not putting that in your in your manifesto because certainly the civil yeah. service you know throughout the term of a government will continue to returning to was this a manifesto pledge that's what we need to devote our resources to so it can have some pretty significant practical implications for, for government I think
0: yeah excellent question and then a hmm. uh, gentleman behind
2: hi sorry thank you I'm Dominic Hart postgraduate student at King's College London um
3: I'd just like to pick up on some comments about the kind of process of making a manifesto and obviously the process for Labour and Conservatives seem to be very different and I'd just like to ask uh, whether that process in Labour or the lack of in the Conservative Party may hinder or advantage the kind of creation of a manifesto.
0: Excellent question. Right. Um, So the first point being about manifestos becoming ever more important, given we're talking about how long they already are and how many specific pledges, Mm. does that fill you all with dread? Um, Question about how to influence manifesto. Excellent question. Um, Andrew, I'm going to start with you on that one. Is there, I mean, obviously there is a process, but if you are an external body, you know we talk about opposition policy making these sort of mm. years ahead and that sort of forming and, and generally once it's gone into the small group even though it's got to go mm. out to clause five and all that yeah, yeah it's still you're not going to get much of an influence you no. know at that point um, in the electoral cycle are you
2: I mean this is a bit late saying this in, in you know kind of spring 2024 but getting early would be my advice if you want to influence a <laughs> manifesto um, you need to show Um, Not that just it's a, here's a a good policy that makes sense. Obviously that's important and people will adopt things that won't necessarily go in the manifesto because some of your smaller things that you might want to do in government won't necessarily be in the manifesto because they're not particularly saleable. There might be quite technical changes and so on. Mm. Um, But you need to show that it's popular. You know, if you're trying to get a headline policy in in a manifesto, there's no point in being there if it's not popular. So show public opinion is on your side. Show even better if you can, show that it shifts votes. This issue, and secondly, if it's not yet an issue in the public's mind, make it an issue. Campaign, build a campaign around it so that the public is thinking, wait a minute, why isn't anybody saying anything on X, you know, or Y or Z or whatever? Because there are lots of issues where neither party at the moment is speaking about certain mm. policy areas mm. and they are really important, and it's bad for politics that that's not, that debate's not happening. So make it happen, which is difficult, I know. Um, Try and get some oxygen around it. Try and build alliances with different campaigners, celebrities, organisations, whatever. Hook into news stories that do it, humanise it. That's the way to influence it, I think, more than kind of at the last minute going, here's a really good technical policy. If it's small technical change in government that is, you know, clause three of a 78-page bill, that's fine as an approach. But if you're talking about big picture stuff get in early and try and shift public opinion as well.
0: And that if point if on, on party management, presumably mm. the same is true there. If you've got mm. MPs who are like, I really want this in the yeah, manifesto, is yeah. a good way of, yeah. of pleasing them.
2: Yes, it is. And, and you know, you can... I mean, I, I wouldn't say necessarily putting something in the manifesto to buy off backbench discontent is a good way forward. The manifesto would have been a lot longer in both elections <laughs> if that was the case. Um, <laughs> probably much different. Um, but, yeah, I, th- I think there is a certain... Um, as I say, I think we, wherever it comes from, actually, in all seriousness, it's about does it shift votes? Is it popular? Is it going to help us you know, portray ourselves as a certain thing? And does it fit in with your overall narrative? I would say. Um, and if it's something the public is crying out for and isn't being addressed, then you're onto a winner potentially. Yeah, would be my view.
0: Rachel, that question on process: does it help? Would the Conservatives having a process help or no? Definitely no. not. <laughs>
1: um, no, I would say I would, I would probably argue it's certainly not unique. That one of the reasons the Conservative Party has been a historically very successful party electorally is because it's flexible, and the reason it's flexible is it's not bound by any specific process. Now that can go very wrong, but over many decades, I think it probably helps more than it hinders. But others would, they would probably well disagree. Um, On influencing, I think all of your advice I would absolutely agree with. The only things I would say is um, how you influence a manifesto does depend on how expensive and how politically contentious what you want is. Mm. Um, If you're something that's very inexpensive and not politically contentious, then going through individual cabinet or shadow cabinet, people who have particular mm. interest in area or, or, or kind of a more elite process is much more likely to be successful than if it costs lots of money or it is politically contentious. Mm. Whereas I would agree with everything that you said. Um, everyone goes too late. Yeah. Whatever time you think you are doing, like the time to start campaigning for the 2029 manifesto is now. Like everyone mm. waits too, too long in, in, in my view. Mm. Um, manifestos becoming more important. It's a very interesting argument, which seems plausible. I, I suppose the other reason I would say, I think manifestos may become more important in the future, although it will not be true for this year, is we are entering an age of absolutely massive political choices. Mm. Mm. Um, it, in a way that I don't think was nearly as obvious in my formative political year. So I graduated just before the financial crisis sort of the the end of the end of history period. But even after that, when you look at what is driving European politics now and American politics, I think the relative stasis of the policy debate in Britain cannot hold for that much longer. And that means that whether you call them manifestos or or just simply big policy choices are, are bound to become a bigger part of campaigns in the future.
3: Robert. Uh, well, first of all, I don't think they're going to become more important. I think they're going to become less important, um, not least because we increasingly have a generation that doesn't read. Um, you, know, we, we, you know, we are moving into a world where we are going to be ruled by people who don't read books. Um, so for a starting point, I think there's a chance that they will not read manifestos. Um, I think policy and the platform is going to matter, but, but, the, but the reasons you set up, they might matter because of the obstruction in the House of Lords or obstruction from your own backbenchers. Um, I haven't noticed either of those two things abating in, in the high watermark of manifestos. Um, I think when it would matter, for example, if the Labour Party were to push through with its, the, the, the issue it's dabbled with, which is abolition of the House of Lords, then I think it's incredibly important yeah. that it's in the manifesto. And I think whatever it does intend to do with the House of Lords should be spelled out in the manifesto if he wants any chance of getting it through. Mm. Everything else... I I, I think is not my favourite manifesto in terms of the way it's set out. Was Margaret Thatcher's first in 1979. It was a superb manifesto which begins wonderfully haughtily with a phrase something like, you know, those of you expecting lavish promises are going to be disappointed. We may try to do more, but who? Knows? And then it sets out the four or five things it's absolutely going to do. It's going to cut income tax. It's going to curb inflation. It's going to smash the trade unions. What the others are, coming, yeah. uh, sell council houses. And, and absolutely clear. And it was, it was a beautifully constructed argument. This is what's wrong with society. Here's how we're going to fix it. And whatever you thought of Margaret Thatcher's. Uh, first term, you can't say you weren't warned, um, yeah. and that was to me was, was, was perfection in a, in in, a, in, a, in the structure of a, a manifesto. And I think so. I think it's it's that overarching narrative that matters as as to how to influence manifestos. The only thing I can say is from listening to the panel is there's no point in talking to cabinet ministers or shadow cabinet ministers because apparently they see it on the day it's published. <laughs>
0: um, it's a
3: couple of areas.
0: Oh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> no, sorry, Andrew, oh. you wanted to come back.
2: Just on the um, on the point about are they becoming more important? I think as well to the voters. I think voters are becoming more discerning, actually. I, I don't agree with Robert there. I think, you know, the fact of us looking at it through social media, clips of manifestos, you know, screenshots of particular pages and pledges are going to be everywhere. You know, we are getting more... It might not be that everyone... But that's fits, not the doesn't same thing. That's no, but snippets. I think there will be campaigning campaigns around it. And I think, actually, you know, We are increasingly got more graduates. I don't buy this thing of we're not reading books. People are reading books. They're reading them on Kindles and all sorts. I don't agree with that. I don't think we're becoming less literate as a society. I think we're becoming more politically engaged. Um, I think our politicians are possibly disappointing us more as that happens. But I don't think there's a lack of politics in the public, actually, at all. Um, And I think, actually, uh, the scrutiny of manifestos uh, that is available now is much greater than it was when I was... uh, Kid,
3: certainly. That's that's to take that's take this point too literally. I mean, in the same way as one can say every policy we had tested really well and was really popular, but we lost because actually the public formed a view on us and didn't care what our policies were because they didn't like us. And the point is, you can find things, you can snip things, and you can send them out, and they do—they do, they poll very well. But the overarching thing that matters well, to voters is—do I like, really? you know, do I like the cut of your jib? Do I, I think you are
0: yeah. my I mean, kind of leader? That plays a
3: role in elections, but that's not really the okay, point I was making. We're
0: now at but, the point of yeah. furious agreement, so <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll move on from that point to something uh, less controversial. A uh, few questions online uh, that we've been very Labour Conservative focused and very UK focused. Um, So one question, uh, Andrew, I think you touched on it earlier on. Um, We've got different general election campaigns happening around the country. For example, in Scotland, where Scottish Labour are in a tight contest with the SNP, Mm. how does that affect the manifesto uh, development? Uh, Another question about tax and spend, when, again, you mentioned it earlier on, Mm. uh, a lot of policies are devolved. I would be interested, Rachel, to know how much um, the Conservative Party also thinks about that in terms of just making sure that it is being specific. Do you have separate manifestos that then yeah? Yeah happen around the country. Uh, And then there was also a question from Anonymous, um, uh, unsurprisingly, uh, asking, what action would you recommend to civil servants under who the anonymous is from, uh, rather than scrutinising political party manifestos in how they prepare for a potential change of government. So, if not the manifesto, where else are they supposed to, to find that? But, Andrew, I'm going to ask you first about mm. the sort of devolved picture. I mm. mean, you talked about it earlier on and the leaking of manifestos, mm. but is yeah. that also part of the earlier process?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think, um, for us, we did look at a lot of the things the Welsh Labour government was doing. They've been in government for a long time um, and still are. They've taken some very different decisions. I mean, you're seeing in some areas quite big divergence between Welsh Labour and UK Labour. In other areas, you're seeing agreements. So for instance, free breakfast clubs is a, is a policy piloted in Wales, but is now being brought into, you know, is going, I think going to be in the UK Labour manifesto, as sure as you can be of anything. But clearly on right to buy, they're not gonna follow the Welsh Labour government in abolishing right to buy, um, as we've heard today, in fact. Um, they're gonna keep right to buy. So there, are, there is divergence and there's devolution, which is good. You know, I think that's healthier, It brings politics closer to people um, in some areas. It doesn't necessarily mean I think one set of policies is right and one is wrong. I'm just saying you, know, you have to respond to your electorate. But certainly for the Labour Party, I think it would be churlish not to look at the example of what a Welsh Labour government has done that's good where it's tried things that haven't worked as well, um, and, and looking at those examples, as well as you know, having a kind of constant dialogue of, of what the two teams are doing, because you can draw on that. They're in government, they've got access to civil servants in Wales, they can you have worked up policies in certain areas. There's no point trying to replicate that in opposition when you've got no resources at all, inherently, or very few, when you've got a Welsh Labour government that's perhaps implemented the policy you might want to do nationally.
0: Um, Rachel, any advice for civil servants in terms of uh, how they should read a manifesto? And, and I think it's a great question,
1: right? If, if, I don't, if I don't read that, what do I read? There's nothing else to read. Mm. Yeah. It doesn't exist. Um, and I actually think one thing that politicians often don't really internalise is the consistent effort required to transmit to a very large number of disparate civil servants what you're fundamentally trying to do. I think that They don't really get the effort required, partly because they've never worked in very large scale organisations before. Um, But I'm afraid for civil servants, I don't think there is a, a real alternative. So the reading of the tea leaves continues.
0: Access Talks is their alternative. Mm. So those will be going on at the moment. Again, we've got an explainer on our website. Uh, oh, with specific departments, yeah. mm. assuming those people then end up in yeah. power. Well, yes, yes but also at the centre, it should mm. then, in theory, be presenting mm. a similarly consistent message across departments about what are the priorities and so forth. Mm. That's a different event. Let's not get distracted no, you're, into you're that. Right, yeah. um, okay, I'm going to come back to the room. I promised this side that I would go. So uh gentleman there, another one, and then one behind.
5: Thank you. Uh, Kevin Jennings, um, I'm a member of a trade policy group. Currently in the UK, the flow of investment is too low. It's low internally, pension funds, businesses, investors, and it's too low externally, where foreign direct investment has collapsed by 80%. This is now endemic, and for the last two years, the flow, the economy, has been unable to maintain its present size on a per capita basis. So we've been in a GDP recession for six of the last seven quarters on a per capita basis, not simply a gross basis.
0: We, we will run out of time. Can you turn it into a question? Yes, realistically,
5: there is only one avenue that can change this, which is magically to rejoin, become a member again of the single market. Without that, none of the parties has any basis that any economist has been able to find which says we'll move to economic growth? How do they handle that issue in the manifestos? Okay, we'll come back to
0: that, thank you.
5: Robert Hayward, House of Lords. Can I say, Robert, I disagree with you, and the first time in my life I've agreed with the left of the Labour Party, uh, in that uh, given, given the ever-growing emphasis in terms of social media, I think the attention will be on detail in mm. manifestos in a way that they've never been before mm. because they circulate so fast with interest parties, left, right, and centre. Mm. And therefore, politicians are going to be confronted by representations very, very quickly on the detail within a manifesto. Mm.
0: OK. And then this gentleman in front of you. Thank you.
5: Hi. Uh, one of the priorities that Rachel mentioned. Can you say who you are? Oh, please. I'm Sammy. Thank you. One of the priorities Rachel mentioned was not losing the mani- losing the election. Could you talk through the idea of red teaming and how you make sure that happens? And secondly, how much do you consider what different outlets and different stakeholders will, will think of a manifesto after it's published and what they'll say and how that will change the influence? good
0: question, Rachel, do you want to start off? Yeah,
1: I think they're very good questions. not it? I think this is actually one of the biggest drivers of the increased word count of manifestos. Uh, So, you know, the kind of exercises you tend to go through is search find, how many times we use the word woman, was it less than the previous manifesto? How many times we use the word veteran, is it less than the previous manifesto? So there's a huge amount of defensive uh, work that goes into a manifesto now to try and avoid a a group feeling that they are um, less well served than they were previously. On red teaming, again, uh, it will be different for the Conservatives and Labour because it's a choice each time. Partly because in 2017 the manifesto was so tight and so few people knew what was going to be in it. And the view was, which I think you could challenge, but the view was then that that kind of big surprise, particularly with social care, was, was what mm. changed the election. I think more possibly the reaction of the Prime Minister to that change, mm. changed the election. Mm. Um, we took the opposite view. So we red teamed things a lot. We had a Quite a substantial team going through it. The downside of that is you potentially remove anything that's kind of interesting because you really <laughs> use the election. The upside is you have fewer uh, bad surprises. Um, and we also had much more uh, of the cabinet on their individual sections, but also a subset overall looking at the manifesto than had previously been the case. So, so in my example, there was a lot of it, but it does change in every single manifesto for the Conservatives. Um, on, on the EU, I would be astonished if any major political party said anything substantive S&P. about it in the next election other than the SNP. Mm.
2: Um, Andrew? Um, I mean, it's great to get the support of the House of Lords. Um, <laughs> uh, I don't think I've ever said that before either. But... Um, <laughs> You can but stay. I think, I, think I think you're right in terms of the detail, and it's not just um, individuals looking at it. I think it's also there are lots of campaigning groups online that will translate what's in the manifesto into readily available comment for others to use as well, which I think is important as well to note. Um, in terms of the um, single market, look, Labour's not going to go into the next election promising to rejoin the single market. I'm pretty sure of that. Um, whether it does it at some point down the line is a different different debate to be had. I also don't agree with you that the only way to get growth is to rejoin the single market. I think that's untrue. I think if you look at the level of public investment and private investment within the UK, and I take your point about the single market might help the private investment side, I'm not sure that's entirely true. It is obviously part of it. I think it probably would in part. But the level of public investment the UK does compared with the rest of the G7 is way below everyone else. The IFS have got charts on this. Um, If you want to get decent levels of growth, you need higher levels of public investment. Look at the US, which is currently growing at 2.5%, massive amount of public investment put in by Biden, in fact, which has levered in a lot of private investment as well, because where public investment leads, private investment often follows. So I think there are ways around that, which is a problem because Labour's just watered down its public investment commitments. But, you know, to my mind, you do need far greater levels of public and private investment in the economy to get growth. I think you can do that outside of the EU. It's possibly slightly easier inside, I agree, but it's not, it doesn't prevent it being outside.
3: Robert? Um, well, I mean, to answer Robert, hey, we, we, we're not going to agree with each other, but all I can say is if you think social media is going to drive greater nuance and greater detail and more serious policy That's discussion, fine. your social media experience is very different to mine um, because I have found the opposite to be true. It, it simplifies and reduces and, 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 and is... Um, encourages people into their bubbles. Um, uh, As far as the Brexit point goes, I I mean, I I totally agree with Rachel and and Andrew about what's likely to happen in terms of um, the next election manifestos. I think this does set up a very interesting question, however, which was one of the many reasons why we ended up where we did on Brexit is because of a sort of a quiet agreement between the major parties to push ourselves further into into an integrated Europe without ever winning the buy-in or until back into the 70s winning the buy-in of the country to that process and it's clear if you're in the Labour party in particular that you know that will roughly be the process again if they win there'll be a bit more integration here a bit more there we'll move it along maybe we'll be able to say something publicly but maybe we'll just keep doing it quietly on things the public doesn't care about like say financial services and a process of secret reintegration whereas actually it's probably the case that if you want to make the argument on Europe now, you can do it overtly. Mm. Um, you know, but Brexit did many things. And one of the things it did was it created a pro-Europeanism that didn't exist really in this country mm. before. So um, I think the danger is by not talking about it, we end up sort of repeating the row.
0: Um, just on your point about social media, question because we haven't really talked about um, other parties, um, but if you were, say, a smaller party, and it is more difficult perhaps to cover off every single policy area, do you think there's ways you could then use social media and approach it in a different way? If not a manifesto, what is, I guess, what I'm saying?
3: Well, I think, I mean, it obviously depends who we're talking about, but in general, um, the, the smaller the party, particularly in our electoral system, um, the more important is just to have one really powerful, cogent message, or sometimes Liberal Democrats have done it by having a very charismatic leader who outpolls and outweighs um, the party, but having one thing that you're trying to say and, and punch through with it. Obviously, if you're the Greens, that's relatively straightforward. Uh, again, also, if Scottish Nationalists, I don't think we call them a minor party, much harder for the Liberal Democrats, but I think the the essence for them is to have one big galvanising policy which makes people pay attention to you.
0: Why okay. not? Go cool. on. Well, it seems to
1: me the Lib Dem strategy is precisely the opposite. is to have no...
3: Well, lib- nothing <laughs> substantial to say. Well,
1: so no, I think We haven't got a Lib Dem on the
3: planet. Sorry, sorry I totally... I went on totally
1: the the Lib Dems
3: have one very, very powerful thing to say, which is that we're the people who can beat the Tories in your area. We're
1: not you. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Okay, uh, final question then to all of you. Uh, if you were giving any advice to somebody writing a manifesto right now, what would it be? Robert, I'm going to start with you. Rachel,
2: I'll come to you last.
3: Well, I would say you keep it short and you keep it very, very simple.
0: Perfect, easy to do. Andrew? Uh,
2: I think Labour's going to win the next election. I think it's going to win it relatively comfortably. Um, so my advice to them would be the exact opposite, partially because I am an idealist. Um, it can get you into trouble, obviously, but. You know, I think it's good for politics, for democratic politics, to be honest and upfront, and to be as out there as you can be on what you're going to do in government. If you're going to get into government with a fairly big majority, you need a lot to do. You're going to be able to get legislation through relatively quickly. There's going to be less horse trading. You've got a majority. Um, And so I would say put out as much detail as possible because you'll need that mandate. Um, And I think it's also good for our politics, good for democracy, to have that open debate. I don't believe in this kind of comm strategist kind of sneaky political advisor.
3: Isn't the danger of that approach, approach, I mean, I I get your argument, isn't the danger that you're sort of of saying, look, we're rather like Theresa May did, you know, we're 20 points ahead, we can afford to take on a bit of weight in this horse race because they're not going to catch us. And you end up putting in things that actually reduce your lead. And the fundamental point of the manifesto is is to help you win.
2: I don't think it's just in the manifesto. I think this is a different approach in the run-up to the election. I think you've got to say, look at the state we're in as a a country, whether it's household finances, the economy, public services, the environment. We are so far behind on virtually everything at the moment. Everything is in crisis. Unless you've got proper policies to turn that around, you're not going to do it. You can put all the nice wordy spin in there, non-committal stuff, But it's not going to change it unless you've got those serious policies. And actually, I think it's better to have that approach that does say to people, look, we're in the shit, basically, you know, we are an aging society, we're going to spend more, taxes are going to go up. As a country in 10 years time, we will be paying more in taxes, not less. That's the reality, right? Even if you get a bit better growth, we are an aging society, we're going to spend more on social care, we're going to spend more on the NHS. We're not going to reduce education spending, you know, if we're sensible and want to grow as a country, we're certainly not. So we've got to have that honest debate, I think. And until politicians do that, we're going to keep getting these crises of, you know, the country's going to get worse and we're going to have more and more disrespect for our politicians, and rightly, if they stick to this kind of current line.
1: Okay, Rachel, final word then. I suppose for Andrew, vice Labour party, I should advise the Conservative Party, which is, there is no manifesto for process for you, it's today.
0: Okay, nice, short, sweet way to end the uh, thing. Um, Thank you all for watching at home. Thank you to Andrew, Rachel and Robert. um, uh, And do see you next time for our next event. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs)